Genesis 12 is where we'll read from in just a few uh, minutes. You've heard the phrase probably, uh, don't forget where you came from. Well, we're going to spend a few weeks remembering where we came from. We're going to go back today beginning 4,000 years before us, 2,000 years before Christ with the one we consider the father of our faith. In fact, some of us as kids used to sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and you can probably remember all the motions that went to that. We're going to begin today, we'll walk for seven weeks through the, the early founders, if you will, of our, of our faith. Today we talk about Abram, who came to be known as Abraham. He was born in the city of Ur, you are in what is now a present-day Iraq. Ur was a wealthy city, and there's every indication that Abraham was wealthy. It was a technologically sophisticated city. They had indoor plumbing 4,000 years ago. They even had air conditioning. They would run cool water through the houses to cool them. And they were a polytheistic city, meaning that they they believed in multiple, many gods. So that, all those things shaped Abraham. When Abraham and his, Abram and his wife Sarai were still a young married couple, Abram's father, Terah, said, let's move to Canaan. But they didn't make it to Canaan, and we're going to talk about that. They left, and following the trade route, they went north to Haran, which is now southern day, in southern-day Turkey, and, and they settled there. And somewhere along the way, either while in Ur or on the way or somewhere in Haran, God, the creator of the universe, spoke to this polytheistic man, this man who believed in multiple gods, and must have, he had to get his attention somehow. We don't know, did he speak audibly? Did he speak in a vision? But this man who believed in many gods recognized this is not just your typical ordinary pagan god with a lowercase g. This is, this is the big guy. This is the almighty. This is the big boss. This is the one god. And he must have gone home to tell Sarai, Sarai, today the, the real god spoke to me and he wants us to go to Canaan. So we're not sure exactly where it is, but isn't that the way that God works in our lives? Sometimes the will of God is seen best in retrospect. We look back and see sometimes more clearly than when we're looking forward. So somewhere in here, God lets Abraham know that he wants him to end up in Canaan, what we call now Israel, and that from his descendants would come a nation. And through, the, through that nation, God would bless the entire world. Let's read that. It's in Genesis chapter 12. And we'll read verses 1 through 7. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and show your father's household, and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that's really important that we understand that that God needed a people. He needed representatives, not just to bless them, but to bless the entire world through them. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, whom we'll talk about next week. 
his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled throughout the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we're going to talk about Abraham or Abram who would become Abraham. And we're going to talk about a new land We're going to talk about a new life, we're going to talk about a new name, and we're going to talk about a new God. A new land, a new life, a new name, a new God. Let's start with the new land. As I said, Terah, Abram's father, said, let's go to Canaan. So they took the trade route, went north into what is now southern Turkey, to the place called Haran, and they settled there. Genesis 11, 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Get that, they were headed to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The word settled is a sad word usually. When you're headed one place and you settle for another, that's a sad thing. So Terah and his clan only made it halfway there. Let's talk about living life halfway. Have you heard of the new phrase, quiet quitting? It's quite popular now. It began just a few weeks ago in a a, a TikTok post when a guy used that phrase, quiet quitting. It's now all over uh, social media and it's it's being reported on by uh, mainstream news outlets. In fact, this past Wednesday, just four days ago, a, a headline in the Wall Street Journal read, quiet quitters now make up half the U.S workforce according to a Gallup poll. So what is quiet quitting and who are the quiet quitters? Quiet quitting on your job does not mean that you you do nothing. It it means you do just enough. So you're not going to go home early, but you sure ain't going to go home late. If you're supposed to get off at 4, at 3.59 and 30 seconds, you're done. And you're not going to excel, and you're not going to stretch, and you're not going to be exemplary. You're not going to do anything more than you, than you have to. So people are not telling their bosses that. They're just quietly quitting. One lady, uh, Maggie Perkins, uh, is a quiet quitter and said, there was no reason for me to hustle because there's no promotion opportunities. If you're the person who wins the award for employee of the year, you'll make the same salary as somebody who isn't. Now, I understand the motivation of promotions and I understand the motivation of raises, but what happened to doing a good job because it's the right thing to do? Colossians 3.23 says, whatever your hand finds to do, work hard as if for the Lord and not for people. So what happened to just doing a good job because it's the right thing to do? Wouldn't it be wonderful if people, if employers said, I want to hire Christians because these Jesus followers, they excel, they, 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 they are exemplary, they, they stretch and they give me the best they have. 
Now, I know that there's somebody uh, much younger than me, some skeptical young person saying, okay, boomer, have you heard that phrase? Okay, boomer, you know, old guy, we get it, we get it. Your, your generation overworked and we're not going to. I get that. But this is not just a generational thing. And I'm not encouraging people to be workaholics. I really am not. I do believe, though, it is, it is our call as followers of Jesus to be the best we can be at work, in our families, in our volunteer roles. If we're volunteers, we ought to be the best, best volunteers the school or the, whatever the organization is, has. Now, that might mean we have to say no to some things, right? Because to be good at anything, you have to say no to some things. So, we can't do everything, but that which we do, we ought to be our best, including church. Quiet quitters. It feels like COVID has resulted in some people quietly quitting church. The Pew Research says that um, on this morning, on Sunday morning, there will be two-thirds the number of people that were here pre-COVID. Not just in this church, I mean in any church across the land, that the average is 66% of people who were here before COVID. Lifeway research says it's 75%, a little better. But that means that somewhere in the vicinity of two-thirds or three-fourths of the people are here, and a third or a fourth are somewhere. Now, if it's any consolation, we're a little better than the average, and, and we're seeing a lot of new faces, which is wonderful. But it still feels like, and I'm not, I'm not just talking about us, there are a lot more people watching by television than in the room, so I'm not just talking about us. It feels like that, that some people have quietly quit church. The interesting thing is that finances have not come down as much as attendance has. So across the land, churches are, you know, it's a little bit less in finances, but a lot less in attendance, which sounds like and feels like people are sending their checks and just staying home. Now, don't misunderstand me. We're glad to get you checks. Let's just be real <laughs> clear about that. We do appreciate your financial stewardship, but we need more than, than your direct deposits. We need you. We need you to sit among us. We need you to work among us. So if you are a member of a congregation, whatever that congregation is, please don't quietly quit. Don't live church halfway. So Terah took his clan and he said, let's go to Canaan. But they got to Haran and they said, you know, let's just, let's just settle here. A new a new land, was Can a new life. When Abraham finally made it to Canaan, what we call Israel, God said, this is the land I will give to you and your people for all generations. God was doing something new and big in Abram's life. Let me ask you a pointed question. Are you open to God doing something new and big in your life? 
Are you open to something new, even if it means something of a risk? Are you open to something new, even if it means you have to go back to school? Are you open to something new? I think it was the Sunday that I I came as your pastor, or maybe in view of a call, but I told this story about our daughter, Brennan. Long time ago, we were living in Mount Washington, Kentucky, and I had been contacted by a church in Richmond, Virginia, about the possibility of coming to be their pastor. I had visited there. Carrie and I had visited. We had talked. It looked like I was going to be pastor in Richmond. So we we called the two older kids in uh, for a a family meeting. Um, Landon was 16. Brennan was 14. And so you can imagine how, how popular we were when we said, it looks like we're going to move to Richmond. Now, Brennan was 14 years old with a boyfriend who, of course, she thought she was going to marry and spend her life with. So, when we said uh, we're moving, probably moving to Richmond, she was terribly unhappy. Two mornings later, she came out of her room to breakfast, and this is what she said. She said, last night in my quiet time, I was reading that story of Job, how God said to Job, leave your country and your people and go to a land I will show you. Might that have been Abraham, I asked. Whoever, she said. (laughs) And then she said, I think that might be a sign that we're supposed to go to Richmond. Would you be as wise and courageous as a 14-year-old with a girlfriend who would say, if God wants to do something new in our lives, then we're open. Would you be willing to say that? Now, it, will, it might require a little bit of risk. You may have seen the t-shirt, you can't steal second with your foot on first. There's always a bit of a risk required, a measured risk. And maybe you heard uh, the, um, the poem there. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked. He never tried. He never sang or prayed. And when one day he passed away, his life insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they said he never died. Are you really living Have you settled in Haran when God wants you in Canaan? This past Friday, there were three funerals in our church family. In meeting meeting with one of the family family, uh, members of the one who had died, uh, the daughter said, my dad lived big and loved big. Are you living big? Meaning, are are you experiencing all that God has for you. It might require something new. It might require a measured risk. It certainly will require courage. So there was a new land. They they settled in Haran, and then finally Abraham made it to Canaan, and then God gave him a new life, a big life, bigger than he could have imagined. Third, a new name. In Genesis 17, God says to Abram, I'm giving you a new name, Abraham. 
Abram means honored father. Abraham means father of a multitude. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you more influence than you ever dreamed. And your influence will not die with your last breath, but your influence will continue generation to generation. And none of us is as famous as Abraham. We, we won't be. But it is true that when we make decisions, there are ripple effects that go not only outward, but that go forward to the next generation and the next. So the question is, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Catherine Tucker Wyndham, the great Alabama writer, the late tech Catherine Tucker Wyndham, talked about her uncle Bertie, B-E-R-T-I-E, and she described him like this. Uncle Bertie was very rich and very stingy and owned a drugstore in Grove Hill. When Bertie died, when Uncle Bertie died, she went to get her mom to take her mom, drive her mom to the funeral. Her mom was ready when she got there and beat her to the car. Catherine Tucker Wyndham said, Mom, why are you in such a hurry to get to the funeral? Her mom said, I can't wait to get there to hear what the preacher has thought up to say about Bertie. (laughs) You know what the preacher said? He could drive a straight nail. That was the best he came up with. How do you want to be remembered? I'm not talking about just what will the preacher say at the funeral. But will you be remembered for more than your vocation? Will you be remembered for more than your hobby that you could drive a straight nail? Last weekend, there were five funerals in our church. This past Friday, there were three. You do that many funerals, and we've spread, spread it. I'm so grateful for the team that has, has shared that load. But you can't, you can't face death that many times without considering your mortality. One of those who passed away was 43. The Bible says we should consider the, our days, the number of our days, so that we would be wise. It is not morbid, it is simply wise to remember that our days on this planet are numbered. And what legacy, what legacy do you want to leave? We determine now what the ripples will be and what the grandkids will say and what The people who follow in this church will believe about us. A new land, a new life, a new name that said, I'm going to give you influence for generations. And finally, a new new God. God was not new in Abraham's day. Of course, he was here before time itself. But God the Almighty, Yahweh, Jehovah, was new to Abraham. Remember, Abraham had grown up in a polytheistic city where they believed in multiple, many gods. And Joshua 24 says that Terah, his father, believed in multiple gods. That's the the context that shaped him. So Abraham knew nothing other than the idea that 
that there are a lot of gods out there. And then one day, the creator of the universe revealed himself to Abram. And and suddenly he knew there's not a pantheon. There's a one theon. And his name is Jehovah. Ur. The city he grew up in was a wealthy city, a technologically advanced city, and a polytheistic city. Our nation is increasingly Ur-like. Wealthy compared to other nations. Technologically advanced. We're going to launch Artemis, right? We're going to launch Artemis. Technologically advanced. And increasingly pluralistic. Or relativistic. Relativism is the idea that that truth is relative. That it really doesn't matter which road you choose. Because all roads, in the end, lead to the same place. But the Bible is not relativistic. The Bible does not teach relativism. The Shema, one of the early communications with the people of Israel, there is one God. And that one God became flesh and dwelt among us. And and we called his name Jesus. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, where he's quoted, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And then Acts 4.12 says there's, there's no other name whereby people can be saved, referring obviously to the name of Jesus. And then Ephesians 2.20, people without Christ are without hope and without God in the world. Now this is mystery to me. And if God has provided other means to himself, that is his business. I'm not on the committee that decides who's in and who's out. But I do believe we, we are, as followers of Jesus, are to live as we understand the Bible to teach. And as I understand the Bible to teach, it would be unwise for me to offer hope where the Bible does not offer hope. Let me say that again. It is unwise to offer hope where the Bible does not offer hope. Years ago, we, had, we were missionaries in Nigeria. We were on furlough in, in Birmingham, living in um, Samford housing. And I took the three kids to Homewood Community Pool. They were 10, 8, and 6. I took the two little ones out to the to the deep end. It was kind of an adventure, you know, so we, we went out there. It was not over my head, but it was over theirs, and I let Brennan and Grant play, never beyond the reach of my arms, but I let them play in the, in the deep water. Then after a while, we came back to the shallow end. I, I remember sitting on the side, and they played right here. And then two nine-year-old boys who were trying to be nice to Grant came up and asked if they could take him out to the deep end. Well, I, I said yes. And, and I watched this, those two nine-year-olds. They were so nice. And they took Grant uh, toward the deep end, and I became concerned for a number of reasons. Number one, water is dangerous. Number two, they were nine and incapable of 
saving him should he get into trouble. Number three, they didn't love, with, love him with all their life like I did. And in a pinch, I couldn't count on them to risk their lives for his. And so I said, hey, guys, y'all, y'all come on back over here. The problem was not that they were bad kids. In fact, they were really nice kids. It wasn't that Grant didn't trust them. He trusted them. I mean, after all, they were nine, so he figured they could do anything, right? He trusted them completely. But sincere trust is not enough. The object of our trust is critical. And I do believe that there are lots of people who have placed their sincere trust in paths or figures who cannot save them. Yesterday I saw a sign. I was in a place where there was a sign that said, here we welcome all religions. And I thought, well, of course. I'm not talking about discrimination. I'm not talking about being unkind. It is simply unwise to offer hope where the Bible does not offer hope. And I believe that the hope of the world is Jesus. So 4,000 years ago, God spoke to a man named Abram. And he said, I have big plans for you. Not here, but somewhere else. And I want you to have an influence on generations to come. And I want you to know that I am the one, I am the one God. Maybe today, uh, the same Spirit is speaking to you.